0: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's April 22, 1991, at Grantham and Kesteven Hospital in Lincolnshire. It's a busy night at the children's ward, and one of the patients admitted is 15-month-old Claire Peck. The little girl had begun to wheeze at night and her breathing problems hadn't stopped. Today, she has what doctors believe is an asthma attack. Claire is quickly hooked up to a ventilator. Stabilized, she is left alone with the ward nurse, and her parents are assured that she will recover. But not even an hour later, the alarm is sounded on Ward 4. Claire is going into cardiac arrest. She is resuscitated, but heartbreakingly, she soon has a second heart attack. This time, she doesn't survive. Sadly,
1: I had to share with the parents and said, look, this is impossible, but I can't do anything more.
0: Claire's parents are devastated. The hospital staff is also upset, but they're also suspicious. Claire's is the latest in a string of mysterious deaths on the ward. Twelve other children also have strangely fallen ill. All of them, infants and young children. The oldest was only six years old. It can't be just an unfortunate coincidence. It soon discovered that Claire's blood contained lidocaine. It's a drug for adults, but much too strong for a newborn. Any nurse should have known that. The obvious conclusion? It was done on purpose.
2: I began to realize that there was a serial killer that was working on that ward and was causing the collapses of of these children.
0: An investigation finds that all the children have something in common. They have all been alone with a nurse named Beverly Allett.
3: Sergeant walked in and then he said, um, we have reason to believe that we were a result of a maladministration of drugs.
4: This is quite a common method for, firstly, a female serial killer and a healthcare serial killer. Poison is a very common method used by these people. It's accessible. It's something that that is not going to immediately cause concern. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that
0: chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Beverly Allett, the Angel of Death. Beverly Allett was born on October 4, 1968, in the small Lincolnshire village of Corby Glen. She was one of four children. Forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Allett's background didn't wave any red flags.
4: So normally when we we have a serial killer, we have an abusive or a violent childhood. There's something that's there in the background, but with Beverly Allett, there doesn't seem to be any real powerful explanatory factor.
0: Even from a young age, Allett knew she wanted to be a nurse. As a teenager, she was good with children, which made her a popular babysitter. There was, however, one odd thing about Alet. She would often wear fake bandages or casts and seemingly basked in the attention the injuries brought her.
4: I think Beverly Alec was, was really most at home when she was in the middle of a drama. So she was deliberately creating the drama and then casting herself in a, in a leading role within it.
0: At the height of this attention-seeking,
4: Allet had her appendix removed
0: when she was, in fact, healthy. But Allet's dream career was soon underway. At age 16, she began training as a nurse at Grantham and Kesteven Hospital,
4: she was a regular in the A&E department. She would constantly turn up there complaining of various symptoms and illnesses. And she got a bit of a reputation amongst the, the staff there. So they were very surprised to learn that, that she was a trainee nurse. And the, the dots just simply weren't joined up because often when, when somebody is a nurse and they're training as a nurse, you're only seeing them you know, during that part of their day. You're not seeing the, the bigger picture.
0: Alice stayed on and trained for three years, In February 1991, she applied for a job on the children's ward of a larger hospital, but was rejected. Lucky for Allett, though, Grantham was short on staff. Allett was able to stay on as a nurse at 22 years old.
4: So Beverly Allett had applied to other hospitals, other departments, for a job as a nurse upon her completing her her qualifications. She'd been turned down by all of them. When Ward 4 employed Beverly Allitt, it was because they were incredibly short-staffed. They were pretty desperate. They they needed more nurses on duty. And normally, they wouldn't have taken Beverly Allitt on because she she didn't have the correct level of qualifications, the the usual level of qualifications that they would ask for. So it was desperation, really.
0: One of the consultants on Ward 4 was Dr. Cherith Nanyakara.
1: My... First impressions about Beverly Arrett was nothing outstanding. She was just another quiet, pleasant, obliging nurse who was available.
0: On February 21, 1991, Alec played her first ever nursing role. Seven-month-old Liam Taylor had developed a severe cold. His parents were concerned, but not overly worried. Chief Superintendent Stuart Clifton, who later investigated the case, explains what happened.
2: He was taken uh, to Grantham Hospital and was seen by one of the pediatricians and diagnosed with bronchiolitis. A couple of hours later, they see their child with just a nappy on.
0: The couple was assured that Liam would be home safe in a few days. They left while he was intubated, but looking otherwise well. An hour or so later, they returned, and the situation had deteriorated.
2: He's clearly terribly distressed, and the nurse, Beverly Allitt, explains that during the course of feeding, he'd vomited and choked. The next evening, the two parents decide to stay in the hospital. The mom is so tired that she goes to bed early and the father stays up. He looks in on the child just before midnight after having had a shower at the hospital and sees that there's a nurse with him. He goes off to bed thinking that the problems are are over and he's awoken about five o'clock in the morning by the night sister who asks him to come because Liam has relapsed. The child's blue backs are arched, and Dr. Nanyakara tells them that he stopped breathing and they'd had some difficulty
1: restarting the heart. Later that morning, Liam dies. Sadly, I had to share with the parents and said, look, this is impossible, but I can't do anything more. I felt so sad, he died in my hands.
0: Liam's parents were devastated. But at a hospital, deaths are part of everyday life. So no one was suspicious, yet. On March 5th, 1991, Grantham and casteven Hospital suffered another tragedy. Young Timothy Hardwick was admitted after having an epileptic episode at his school.
2: Timothy Hardwick was an 11-year-old boy who had a lot of problems in his life. He, he suffered with cerebral palsy and was epileptic. He was transferred to Grantham Hospital, where doctors managed to get his fitting under control.
0: Once again, Beverly Allett was one of the nurses on staff, and yet again, she was left alone with the child.
2: A very very short time after Beverly had been left with him, this child suddenly stops breathing. She raises the alarm, and
1: the crash team are called. One of the staff nurses came to my office and said, "Dr. Nanekar." And please come and see Timothy. He is not well. Apparently, he had collapsed. And then when I went there, I tried to resuscitate him. But by that time, he's virtually had no signs of life.
2: Sadly, they can't resuscitate him, and the child dies.
0: A second child's death in as many months was horrendous. But there was no reason to suspect foul play, and Alet was able to continue going along as if everything was normal. Local radio reporter Sean Dunderdale says Alet's choice in victims was all happenstance.
5: There's a real impact there of, of you know, it could, it could have been a family member, you know. Um, it's the local hospital. One of my members of my younger family could have gone into the hospital to be cared for by a nurse and look what happened and that could and that's the thing with this story you know it could have happened to absolutely anyone the parents who were affected by that were purely unlucky that their child went into that hospital on that day and that Beverly Alet was their nurse
0: just five days later on March 10th 14-month-old Kaylee Desmond was admitted to ward Four, suffering from a chest infection she was left alone with Alet for a time and had an unexpected heart attack
2: Beverly Allett was seen in the room and actually called other nurses to go and have a look, which was one of her common things. She would call other nurses to say, come and have a look at this child, and then the crash team would be called.
0: Kaylee was resuscitated and quickly transferred to another hospital. In the second hospital, Kaylee's doctors found the first signs of interference. She had an unexplained puncture mark under her arm. Chief Superintendent Stuart Clifton recalls finding the evidence in his later investigation.
2: We were able to show that there was needle tracking under the arm of this little girl and and an air bubble which had obviously um, caused the equivalent of what we would call a heart attack.
0: Due to the massive toll the arrest put on her frail body, she was left brain damaged. But Kaylee survived and Allett carried on. A few weeks later, something would happen to one of the children that was finally deemed worthy of further investigation. Five-month-old Paul Crampton was admitted to Ward 4 on March 20th, 1991 with a chest infection. His father, David, and Superintendent Inspector Stuart Clifton remember what happened.
3: Paul was actually born with um, uh, measles and uh, he was taken home. And then after a relatively short period, a few months, Kath took him to the doctors, my wife, um, and he had a, a wheeze. Um, they were, I think, overcautious, but that's the right thing with a child of that age, and they took him into hospital. The first three days of his care were completely unremarkable, and,
2: and he was expected to go home on, on that third day. During the course of that, that day, Beverly Allett brought to the attention of other nurses, the fact that this little boy was having difficulty breathing.
0: Again, a child who seemed to be doing well suddenly developed severe, life-threatening symptoms.
3: I walked into a scene I did not expect, and that was Paul in the arms of a nurse, I think, at that particular time. He was cold, clammy, gray. And I recall that uh, Nurse Beverly allott was there, and she said at the time this child is hypoglycemic. The doctor had been called. The doctor came and Paul was taken into the treatment room and he disappeared for what seemed to be an eternity before um, we were allowed into the treatment room. And I remember Paul sat there playing with his toes. He seemed to have made a total recovery. So obviously that was quite frightening. So we went within a very short space of time from a child that's coming home to a child that's now seriously ill and without too much explanation.
2: The following day, which was a Sunday, Beverly Alec went to take the drip down, and within the space of a few minutes, the boy was once again hyperglycemic.
0: Paul seemed to go in and out of recovery every time Alec was around. Eventually, Paul deteriorated into such critical condition that he had to be transferred to Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham.:
1: Paul came from the ward that Paul had collapsed again, and my colleague rushed through. and when he saw his collapse, he immediately called the team from Nottingham and transferred him.
3: He went in the ambulance, both with my wife and um, and with a doctor, and Nurse Beverly Allert went in the ambulance with him. I remember walking into the ward at Queens Medical Center, and it was just a totally different atmosphere. Calm, relaxed, in intensive care, but I just got the feeling that he was just going to get better and he did.
0: It was that transfer that saved Paul's life and would later indicate that this was no accident. Tests revealed that the insulin in his blood was alarmingly high. The normal numbers are between four and six milliunits per liter, but Clifton says it was thousands of times higher than that.
2: Dr. Porter, had taken blood which had been sent to the University Hospital at Cardiff for examination. The insulin in the blood of Paul Crampton at 47,000 is the second highest ever recorded in the world.
1: He was fortunate enough to survive and it was felt that he had abnormal external insulin been administered.
0: It was unthinkable was someone at Grantham and Kesteven Hospital purposefully hurting small, helpless children? A real investigation wouldn't start until several months later, and not before six more children were put in danger. In March, 1991, Something mysterious and sinister was going on at Grantham and Kesteven Hospital in Ward 4, the children's ward. Children who were admitted for relatively minor medical issues were taking turns for the worse, and many of them had died. Two of the more fortunate children were Bradley Gibson and Yik Chan. Both children were admitted to the hospital on March 21st. Both were put under the care of Nurse Beverly Allett. Dr. Nanyakara and Superintendent Stuart Clifton tell what happened.
1: Bradley Gibson is admitted under Dr. Porter. He was about five or six years old and had breathing difficulties. Dr. Porter had treated him with possible chest infection. And he then suddenly had stopped breathing and stopped his heartbeat as well, what we call a cardiac arrest, which is extremely rare. Dr. Porter had tried repeatedly to resuscitate him with the defibrillator. He managed to get him round, extremely fortunate. Yik Chan
2: was admitted with a suspected fractured skull. He's in the hospital for a couple of days and he's charging around the place. There's clearly not very much wrong with him. One particular evening, um, Beverly Allett is going off duty and she speaks to the oncoming nurse at about 9 o'clock in the evening and said, can you have a look in at... Uh, Chan, he's crying, he's he's not very well. The oncoming nurse goes into the room and, and finds him with his back arched and blue and the crash team are called and he's resuscitated.
0: Bradley Gibson and Yik Chan both survived unscathed. But three-month-old identical twins, Becky and Katie Phillips, weren't so lucky. The pair was born prematurely and they were regular visitors to Ward Four. In early April 1991, Becky was admitted again and was treated by Dr. Nanyakara.
1: They had repeated admissions, not surprisingly again, with variety of illnesses, diarrhea, vomiting, breathing difficulties, and so on and so forth. And the parents, quite rightly, were very worried and brought them straight to the hospital rather than going to the GP. I had seen them and discharged them, reassured the parents, but. The same night, Becky was brought to the casualty. The casualty staff taking lots of effort to resuscitate her, but she was virtually dead. So I had a long discussion with the parents. They were completely shocked and uh, they were very, very upset. I left some blood samples in the laboratory for any future investigations if needed.
2: And we subsequently found that, that blood and had it analyzed, and that contained 9,660 milliunits per liter of, of insulin in the blood. And you always have to remember, with these huge figures, that a child should have 15 to 20 milliunits. So it, it's horrendous.
0: Becky died from the complications. Her heartbroken parents originally thought that she died of SIDS, or cot death. As a precaution... Dr. Nanyakara asked Becky's parents to bring her twin sister, Katie, into the hospital for monitoring.
2: Katie's taken into hospital, and that afternoon she's allocated to the care of Beverly Allett. One of the senior nurses goes to that particular room to see what's going on. As she enters, she sees Beverly Allett nursing the child in her arms. The child's crying. She sees that the child collapsed within Beverly Allett's arms and the crash team are, are called. They managed to resuscitate Katie, who is, is later transferred.
0: Another transfer saves another baby's life. For a while, all credit went to nurse Beverly Allett. Katie's parents were so happy that they actually named Allett as Katie's godmother. The subsequent investigation would show, however, that Aled's handling of Katie was anything but gentle and loving. Over the next
2: three days, the child, Katie, suffers convulsions. and This child is severely brain damaged as a result of of what occurred. Now, during my investigation, Detective Inspector Jones managed to find x-rays that were taken at the time. The child had squeeze injuries, which had broken a number of ribs.
0: For now, Alad was free to break her oath of do no harm. But a final tragedy would be the last straw. On April 22, 1991, Beverly Allett was on duty when 15-month-old Claire Peck was admitted to Ward 4. She was under the care of the two consultants at the hospital, Dr. Frederick Porter and Dr. Cherith Nanyakara.
1: Claire Peck, She had come with a severe attack of asthma, breathing difficulties, requiring oxygen. So Dr. Porter was called and he had come. He had tried to resuscitate and provide all the necessary care as appropriate. And Beverly Alert on this occasion had been with him. In spite of all the efforts taken, Dr. Porter couldn't resuscitate her and she had died within hours.
0: Claire Peck was the fourth child to die unexpectedly in three months. The pattern was alarming. Doctors Nanyakara and Porter realized that there were too many deaths for it to be accidental. They decided they finally had to look into what was going on.
1: I said, I really don't know what's going on. And got together with Dr. Porter and the senior nursing manager and checked through all the cases of worrying suspicions and anxieties we had. I compiled a report and sent it to unit general manager saying, we have a series of these unexplained and sometimes explained collapses. We are very worried about these problems. And therefore, we want to bring it to your notice. We need your help.
0: On April 30th, the hospital decided to ask the police to investigate the deaths to see if there could be something or someone casting a shadow over Ward 4. The case eventually found its way to Chief Superintendent Stuart Clifton.
2: One of my detective sergeants at Grantham contacted me to say that he'd had a call from Grantham Hospital which suggested that they'd had a high number of collapses of children, which may or may not be down to some criminal act. When I use the term collapsed, I'm talking in terms of each of them having stopped breathing and the resuscitation team, known colloquially as the crash team, were were called to resuscitate the children. There were two paediatricians employed at the hospital, Dr. Porter and Dr. Nanyakara, who had differing opinions about whether the collapses of children at, at that hospital over a period of about three months were actually... Uh, medically related or whether they were at the hands of somebody who was causing those collapses
0: Detectives and doctors met on May 3rd to discuss what to do next It was decided they would bring in an expert in pediatrics, Professor David Hull, to give his insight on each of the cases The police went back and looked at each of the incidents to try and find who was responsible They began with the first death 7-week-old Liam Taylor But they had to tread carefully, says Dr. Elizabeth Yardley.
4: In a healthcare setting, it is very difficult to investigate a murder or or a suspected murder because all of the the individuals on that, that ward have a legitimate reason to be there. Um, they have the access to the victim anyway. And often it's very difficult to prove that direct link between one particular member of staff and one particular victim. So the police have got a really, really difficult job on their hands when they're investigating this type of crime. Keeping
0: the investigation under wraps was key. But about a week into the investigation, their cover was blown.
2: The whole investigation was blown by the local paper. And of course, then the world's press descended on, on Grantham.
0: Local radio reporter Sean Dunderdale was one of the first journalists to latch on to the story.
5: None of us had experienced a story like this um, before. We we, we kind of heard rumours. We knew the police were involved at the hospital, that something was happening. But exactly what? I mean, at that stage, I don't think even the police knew what they were facing, what they were coping with. Because nobody knew what was happening, there wasn't that much information to start with. And and slowly it started to... um, Develop as a story that, that clearly something uh, big was happening at Grantham, that there was a major investigation. And eventually it did uh, sort of get out there into the, into the media and that there had been certainly a number of, uh, of, of odd occurrences involving children on the children's ward.
0: There were a total of 13 suspicious incidents, four deaths, and nine close calls. Detectives began to approach family members of the victims with the shocking news that their children may have been deliberately attacked. In the
2: early stages of the investigation, the the parents were certainly had an attitude that suggested that the police should not be interfering with an investigation of, of this type. I think it's fair to say that as the teams began to investigate the circumstances and they became more and more aware of the circumstances surrounding the collapse of their child, they became more and more on board.
0: David Crampton, father of one of the children who lived, Paul Crampton, remembers getting a strange phone call. I
3: had a phone call from Grantham police, um, and it was, we'd like to come and see you. Uh, I won't tell you what it is, but we'll come and see you tomorrow. I was uh, at an office in Grantham at the time, and the um, sergeant walked in, and then he said, um, we have reason to believe that Paul's um, illness, hypoglycemic attack." were a result of maladministration of drugs. And I remember my words exactly. That would explain a lot, wouldn't it?
0: The investigation revealed Paul Crampton had an unexplained needle mark under his arm where he had been injected with a deadly amount of insulin. This was further proof to detectives that they were dealing not only with a negligent nurse, but with a killer. It also was revealed that Becky Phillips had been held in such a way that some of her bones were broken.
2: There's clear evidence of air injected under the arm of one child. There's evidence of squeeze injuries. There's evidence of um, insulin. What was a common factor with the vast majority of these children was that each of them had a cannula fitted, a a site um, usually in the back of the hand where drugs or drips can be administered through. So injecting cardiotoxic drugs would not, be, would not be very difficult because it could go in through the IV port.
0: Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says these kinds of indirect murders were typical of a serial killer who was a woman.
4: This is quite a a common method for firstly a female serial killer and a healthcare serial killer. Poison is a very common method used by these people. It's accessible, it's something that that is not going to immediately cause concern because this is something that's already in that hospital environment anyway. And also poisoning is quite quite a remote method of killing somebody. You're not up close and personal with them. It's not messy. You can administer the poison and then, then leave the scene. You don't have to see them uh, suffer the effects of it.
0: They had gathered evidence. Now, investigators had the arduous task of making a list of suspects.
2: I began to look at the circumstances of insulin in Grantham Hospital. And I found that it was kept in locked fridges on, on the wards. And On the children's ward, the key to the fridge had gone missing three days before the first child had collapsed. Beverly Allett was the last known person to have that key, but no hospital investigation had actually taken place.
0: Beverly Allett's name kept cropping up The 22-year-old always seemed to be at the hospital when the incidents occurred. To confirm this, Superintendent Clifton cross-checked the staff schedule.
2: What we discovered was that for every collapse, Beverly Allett was the only nurse that was on duty on every occasion. And on many of these occasions, we could actually put a right at the bedside, either at the time of the collapse or just before.
0: On May 21st, 1991, Stuart Clifton decided to have Beverly Allett arrested.
2: She was a very strange girl in the interview in that she would talk to you quite, quite normally or talk to the, the interviewing officers quite normally about things like football, pop music. And the minute you got down to, to actually talking about the events at Grantham Hospital, she became a completely different person. Beverly Allett was interviewed at the police station over the course of two days. She made no admissions. In fact, she went so far as to distance herself from all the events at that hospital, saying things such as, I wasn't there on that day. I didn't come on duty until after that had happened. So she, she completely distanced herself, maintained her innocence.
0: When news of the arrest broke, the press knew that this was a huge story. Local reporter Sean Dunderdale talks about why the story was so sensational.
5: Once the investigation went that one step further and obviously a nurse had been arrested, a nurse was clearly under investigation, they had to go public with that, and that's when it all exploded really, that's when the world's media were were suddenly interested because it had never been heard of before that a nurse would do such a thing. You know, it's such a rarity and certainly in this country a first. The whole of of Grantham was just surrounded by journalists, uh, TV crews from around the world, newspapers.
0: Allot's arrest was also a huge shock for the victim's families, who had trusted the hospital and nursing staff with their children's lives. David Crampton, whose son Paul was one of the lucky children, says for him there was a small silver lining.
3: I felt mixed emotions. One is he would want to harm a child, but secondly, we now know what was wrong with Paul, and thank God it's not anything to do with Paul. It's not a medical problem. It is an outside influence.
0: Even though Clifton and his team were convinced that Alet was behind the deaths, they had no hard proof. Alet was released on bail without charge, but she did not return to Grantham and Kesteven.
2: I convinced the hospital that they needed to suspend Beverly Allett from duty because we couldn't take the chance and they couldn't take the chance that another child would be attacked.
0: The police needed to build a case, and quickly. If Allot had done all they suspected, then they had just released a serial killer back into the public. Chief Superintendent Stuart Clifton turned back to the expert, David Hull.
2: I, I asked David Hull, to go away and re-look at the case notes of the children, but to use the statements that my team had taken, which detailed the circumstances of the collapse of each of of these children. He he agreed to do
0: that. Building the case took months. By November 1991, Professor Hall had painstakingly re-examined his original case notes.
2: I basically couldn't take the chance that if she was still working on there, she would harm more children. Albeit that I hadn't completed the investigation by any means, we were merely scraping the surface at that time. So she was arrested and the house was searched. During the course of that search, we found a hospital pillowcase, a used syringe, and a little, child's notebook and it was headed allocations book
0: this allocations book had gone missing from ward four it detailed the names of children that needed extra attention and which nurse was assigned to them it was not only further proof that allett had been caring for the children who had died but that she was hiding evidence from her colleagues on november 20th allett was arrested once more
4: there wasn't very much in the way of remorse. Um, she didn't cry. There was no kind of real visible reaction in her. So I think she does have that kind of cold personality. Um, she's, she's orchestrated all of these terrible events, but, but she doesn't feel any impact from them. She's somebody who doesn't have the same feelings and emotions as, as the rest of us.
0: During the 15-month wait for her trial, The stunned press began to uncover Beverly Allitt's history of faking illnesses.
5: The more we dug into Allitt's background, again, the more unbelievable it became. And and the one question our listeners would ask is, how? How did nobody spot all of this um, and and allow her to continue being a nurse? How
2: did she get through that recruitment process? We got an authorization from her to have a look at her medical records. They indicated, going back to childhood, that, that Beverly liked to be the centre of attention. There were incidents while she was at school where she would sprain a finger and demand that her arm be put in a sling.
4: I think it's tempting to look back and say they should have picked up on that, they should have known that that this was somebody who was not quite right. But I don't think they would have automatically made the link between somebody um, who was perhaps harming themselves and somebody who would then go on to harm other people. Nurses care for their patients, they want to preserve their lives and enhance their, their quality of life. So to think that a nurse would do this is, it's almost unthinkable.
0: Experts would later allege that Alet had been suffering with a mental illness throughout her life called Munchausen syndrome, which caused her to seek attention for fake medical ailments and also led her to commit the murders.
4: Munchausen syndrome is a a condition which basically means that people will invent symptoms in themselves in order to gain the the attention of medical professionals. There's also Munchausen syndrome by proxy. This is when somebody invents symptoms in somebody else in order to get attention from medical professionals. And and that somebody else is often uh, a a child or or somebody who who you're in charge of the care of.
0: That wouldn't exonerate her from the horrors she had inflicted. On February 15th, 1993, 24-year-old Beverly Allett was in Nottingham Crown Court, charged with the murder of four children and the attempted murder of nine more. She pleaded not guilty.
5: The court case was a very harrowing uh, experience. I mean, it was was a long-drawn-out affair. Uh, Beverly Allett wasn't in court for a lot of it. Again, I think some of that manipulation that she was, was known for some of the manipulation she'd clearly done in the hospital. She was trying it with the, the court case as well, and I know that was having an impact on, on family members. They knew of their own individual case, the actual scale of it, apart from what they'd read in the media, heard on the radio, it was the first time they'd actually heard
3: exactly what had been happening at Grantham Hospital. I mean, that was quite traumatic because obviously there was, a there was significant media interest and, and we couldn't. Walk down the street from the car park to the court case without having microphones and stuffed under our nose and and cameras flashing. And, you know, there's a lot of emotion, a lot of emotion around that time, clearly. You couldn't just go home and, you know, close the door
5: and put the TV on and forget about it. It was, it it just was all encompassing. It was, it was the only thing that was on my mind throughout the case and, and for a long time afterwards as well.
0: In the courtroom, Allett seemed completely detached from what was going on around her, says journalist Sean Dunderdale.
5: I firmly believe she felt the families would still be on her side because, you know, they'd been very close. You know, they thought, certainly initially, in those initial stages, that, um, you know, she'd helped save or tried to save their child's life. And so in court, you know, she would smile at them.
0: A lot of the evidence may have seemed circumstantial. But as the trial went on, it became clear that the case against Alec was a solid one.
5: For a long time, people believed it must be a mistake. You know, the, a nurse surely wouldn't be, be be responsible for that. There must be some other explanation for it. But then, slowly, as the evidence re- was revealed, uh, you could see that tide turning. That that, that people suddenly realised complete revulsion that that a nurse of all people w- would would do that. Um, you know, it's suddenly like, well, if I can't trust a nurse, who can I trust? Um, and, and I think that that was a, a real shock to the nation. It resonated right across the country um, when those those actual facts came out about what Beverly Allen had done.
0: On May 28th, 1993, after a draining three-month trial, the jury had reached a decision.
5: I think the moment we were called back into the court is, is something, you know, we'll always, certainly I'll always remember. The member of the jury stood up and that first verdict came in of guilty. And there was just a, again, an intake of breath, lasted just a couple of seconds. Then someone I remember shouted, yes. And I think there was a couple of um, uh, people clapping uh, and then tears from the families, tears from members of the public. It was a very difficult job for the police to actually say, you know, without doubt, Beverly Alec was responsible. So so there was always that possibility if the jury could have just tipped the other way. And thankfully, you know, that guilty verdict came in. And I think it was a huge sense of relief for everyone.
0: The judge, Mr. Justice Latham, sentenced Beverly Allad to 13 concurrent life sentences. One for each of the charges against her. Beverly Allad was immediately sent to Holloway Prison But after just a week behind bars, she was transferred to Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire.
4: I think the fact that Beverly Allett has ended up in a secure hospital is is a really interesting one for me, because this is somebody who, before developing Munchausen syndrome by proxy, could have been argued to, to have just Munchausen syndrome. So she was fabricating illnesses and symptoms in herself before she was harming other people. She was going after that role as the patient. She wanted to be seen, you know, by medical professionals and, and, and play that sick role. She's essentially achieved what she set out to achieve. She's got that status as the patient, which she always wanted.
3: What do I think about where Alex at in a sentence? I, I, I don't waste any energy on that. I don't, don't really think about it. She doesn't enjoy the same freedoms that I do, my rest of my family and the vast majority of the population of this country. She's in a prison. Um, whether that is more comfortable than perhaps some people would like is a bit academic, really.
0: Stuart Clifton visited Allett inside Rampton in 1994, determined to get her to finally admit what she had done. But it was to no avail.
2: She made admissions at that time. She admitted nine of the 13 cases that she'd been um, convicted of. She wouldn't have anything to do with the two Phillips cases. The minute that I began to press her for details about precisely what she'd done, what she'd used, she just walked away from me, wouldn't answer any more questions.
0: For the families of her victims, there will never be a good enough answer of why. Four children were murdered when they had just started their lives. David Crampton, father of Paul, knows firsthand how tragedies like these can tear lives apart.
3: Alec's crimes are like dropping a pebble into a pool of water. Those ripples spread far and wide, a dramatic effect clearly on the families, the families of the victims but their extended family, grandparents, parents, etc, and of course a dramatic effect on the hospital and its staff. So her crimes went far and wide into the community, not just the immediate people affected. If Paul uh, if something worse had happened to Paul, um, such as had happened to other families, how would I have conducted myself? I don't know. Thankfully, I'll never have to know. Paul is 26 years old. He has a house, He has a long-term partner, lovely girl. He's got a career. Paul's doing very well, very, very well.
0: What Makes a Killer is an boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Notoso. This series is produced by Audio Booms Lauren Vogle, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Creggi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks goes out to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. We'd love if you could leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... In 2010, a man was released from prison after serving a short assault sentence... But instead of lying low and returning to a normal life, he immediately escalated his crimes.
2: So he'd fatally wounded one
5: victim, he'd critically injured a second victim, and then he calmly walked away
3: from the scene.
0: And one of the victims was a police officer. It would become one of the largest manhunts in history.
4: He wanted to be iconic, he wanted to be infamous, he wanted to go out with a bang and not whimper.